Welcome to the aggressive life. It was 1675, Sir Isaac Newton, you know, the guy who had the apple fall on top of his head. He writes in a letter to a friend, quote, if I have seen further than others, it's by standing on the shoulders of giants. Behind every aggressive person, there are others whose aggressive moves in the past lay a foundation that's worth standing on. Today, I got a guest and a friend whose shoulders I stand on and who's uh, actually changed my life as much or more than anybody out there. Uh, the aggressive moves that, that you make are the moves that somebody else thinks would be a good idea, but they're just not up for doing it. But you think it's a good idea and you actually do it. You actually do it when it could actually cost you your financial future. You do it when it actually could cost you a lot of other things you could do with your time. This guy made an aggressive move 25 plus years ago that would completely rewrite the story of my life, my life. And that was just the beginning. In 1994, he's carpooling to work with another friend, and they come up with the idea to start a church for their friends who have given up on church but not on God. A year later, the group has grown to 11, and they went all in. They did crazy things like refinancing their homes in order to begin this startup church or at least getting their paperwork ready for it. And as a young pastor, I saw an ad that they placed in a magazine. And I applied for the job, interviewed, and I got the job, and the first service of Crossroads Church took place in 1996. He has got a pretty um, pretty storied history. He's been an executive producer. He's helped bring to life 15 movies, specials, and series for NBC, ABC, CBS, Fox, and the Hallmark Channel. He's also the author of a series of children's novels, starting with The League and The Lantern, which scored a rare perfect 10 from Publishers Weekly Book Life Prize in Fiction. He also founded—I I go on and on. He's done, done an amazing thing. Welcome to the Aggressive Life, Brian Wells. Thank you, Brian. It's an honor, honor to be here. How many of these have you done now? How, how many? How many yeah. uh, podcasts? Anybody, yeah, how many? Dirt, how how many, many podcasts? podcasts? Yeah, 163. Uh, 163. I'm so honored to be the 163rd most interesting person <laughs> in your life. You are not the most interesting, 163rd most interesting person. You know what it might be? Just like sometimes you're in close proximity and you don't realize that, man, this would be a great podcast. So sure. that's okay. you. Yeah, we'll go with that one. No, it's true, <laughs> Beam. It's absolutely true. It's totally true. Uh, I, I was just thinking, it's really, did you think right now, looking back at that weird story of starting a church? I mean, you're just a normal business person working at Procter & Gamble with Jim Bechtold and a bunch of other people, a bunch, a few other people. Uh, I mean, th that's pretty audacious. I don't know another 30-year-old who's actually done something like that. Did that seem crazy to you at the time or not? No, because I, I just, I, I think you, you're, you're just kind of in it. You know, you're not really, you don't really think about looking back on it now. I mean, I'm, I know there's other people who have done that, you know, that kind of thing. But looking back on it now, there were decisions that we made along the way that, you know, now you look back on it, you're like, wow, that was, that was really pivotal. That was monumental or that was a, that was risky, but it didn't feel that way at the time. Just felt, it was just like, you know, you just, you're faithful to what's in front of you right then. And then you, you're faithful to that. And then God shows you something else and shows you something else. Thank goodness he doesn't show us the full path. You know, all we saw was right in front of us and we just went at it. Crossroads is my day job. Our listeners know that. That's a, I'm a pastor by day, podcaster by night, even though we're actually recording at 3.02 in the afternoon. 
<laughs> but uh, it, uh, it's really common for 30-year-olds to be idealists. It's really common for younger people to see what should change the world. What's not common is saying, I'm going to change it. What's not common is saying, I'm going to invest my own finances in it. It's not common to say, I'm going to take responsibility for somebody. I look back at that and I think, man, to tell a guy with two young kids, that was me, Lib, Lena, and Jake, my two kids I had at that point, then another one came along a few years later, to say, we're going to take responsibility for those people and we're going to move them to a different state and we're just going to trust it all works out well for them. That's that seems to be a horse choking amount of faith. Yes, no. You know what? I yeah, I guess it would have been if it had been like Nancy and I doing it on our own. But you know, there's there's this core group of eleven people, and really, just as you're saying it, I never thought about it this way. Is just as you're saying, look back, it was like a barn raising. It was like mm-hmm. a barn raise, just a community thing. We're getting together and do it. So no, it wasn't all on us. But I knew the collective eleven of us together, one way or the other, we had each other's backs. One of the marks of somebody who takes risks is is they don't feel alone because they're not alone. Right. Absolutely. There's a there's something to crowd courage. And sometimes it's because you're all feeling the same thing, but you uh nobody's kind of saying it out loud. So you're like, well, if they're doing it, if they're you know, they're doing it, I'm gonna do it too. So there was a little bit of that in there. But yeah, absolutely. And I heard a, a phrase I remember you a phrase you used not long after I met you was the sweetness of community. Mm. The sweetness of community. So uh Definitely, definitely experienced that. And I, you know, it, the way you set this up at the beginning, I'd say the exact same thing. My life forever changed by, you know, what we did together. Yeah. Well, we're still doing it together. That's that. That's the really cool thing. You know, I haven't maybe thought about it until just now when you talked about doing it together. We were in community and we are in community doing these things. I wonder if the rise in our anxiety as a country, because it's ever increasing, I wonder if the rise in anxiety, how much that's tied to the decrease in our community and how much that's also tied to the decrease in entrepreneurship. I spent a good bit of time in the entrepreneurship community, and there's just fewer businesses that are being started these days. Uh, And many of those ones that are, are just reiterating code in order to have a quick payout. Uh, there is something that is necessary to make an aggressive move when you feel like you're not alone. You got someone who has your back. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I, as we both know, we're not designed to do life by ourselves. And I, you know, I'm saying this as an introvert. You yeah. know, I, or I call myself a, a pseudo introvert. You yeah. know, which is that I want everyone to like me and then leave me alone. You know, and both <laughs> both parts are <laughs> equally important to the equation. Uh, Whereas an introvert but, doesn't care if people like him or not. Is that I, what you're saying? I don't know. I don't know. I just kind of clarify on that. I have these I have these <laughs> conflicting passions in me that I, everyone needs to like me, but then they need to quickly leave me alone. So, uh, um. You are the being. Yeah, yeah, but d- there, there's a strength that comes. There's a strength that comes out of community. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I called you the beam. We should talk about why why you're known as the beam. Everyone has a good nickname who's close to me. You're the beam. Why why is that? Uh, Your ba- opinion. <laughs> My opinion. Based on a lie. Based on a lie, <laughs> like so many of these nicknames are around here. What? Uh, that is not a lie. Look at him. That man is dirty. He has not a lie. That man is dirty. His wife would you know validate what? that. Okay, we, we should. We should. This is particularly a, a 
particularly relevant now for me to talk about conversations that Brian and I have had about nicknames where he's pointed out to me that great leaders give people nicknames around them. Look what Jesus did and all that. I've pointed out that what Jesus did was he found something great potential in somebody and called it out of them with predictive affirmation. You know, Peter, you're a rock, you know, sons of thunder, you know, etc. So that's the next level for you is nicknames that actually call out something great in somebody, not to just make you laugh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so you're going to have a new one coming at some point, Caleb. Uh, uh, that is true. That's a, that, that's a yeah, important so, thing. So mine was, based on, <laughs> mine was based on years ago, years ago, me sharing a quote from you that Tony Campolo had said, you know, at one point, you know, it's like, you know, he was talking about people and stewardship of their finances and things like this and not getting caught up in the American rat race. And he said, so am I saying that you shouldn't buy, that a Christian shouldn't buy a BMW? Yes, that's what I'm saying. A Christian. I was just quoting Tony Campolo, and you, you, and you thought my initials were BMW, so you just called me BMW after that to yeah, kind beam, of try to irritate me, and then that became Beam, and then <laughs> here we are today, which it beats dirt, I will say. <laughs> so I'll stick with it. It does. It does. But there was a well. There, and also, you... there was an importance to nicknames early in the life of Crossroads because there were two Bryans. You know, Brian Tone, Brian Wells. People were getting confused. I had thrown out there the option that I would answer to Stud Boy, and it just did not catch on. So then, then Beam came the <laughs> Beam became the thing. It was well uh, the, for me. The funny uh, conclusion that story is you uh, you actually bought a BMW a few years ago, go. which I was <laughs> utterly stunned by. Worst. Because the, while I might have what I might have gotten while I might have gotten the details wrong on your nickname, you would not deny that you are a cheap ass. You would not deny that, would you? Uh, I'm, I'm frugal. Yeah, for <laughs> okay. a missionary mindset. A missionary mindset. Yeah. No, no, no. Well, we got and we got a used BMW from somebody that we really trusted that ended up being the worst decision of my life. So it did nothing but just uh, reinforce to me. Yeah, I, I love what you said about that BMW. You said you said all it cost me was I can't remember the price. Let's make it six thousand bucks. Said all it cost was six thousand bucks of my self righteousness. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Although uh, I've I, I, I've scratched, I've I've clamored some of that self righteousness yeah, back since then. So <laughs> that's good. All right. So, but it's true, man. It's true. You and I have uh, are very close friends. Uh, Beam and I have been um, literal next door neighbors for oh, how long was it? Ten years or something like that? Something like that. Ten or twelve. Years. Ten years. Um, very very different. He and I. We have we're very very different. Many 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 ways. Uh, but yet, I, I say it all the time to you and, and a few others, like, I can't imagine what my life would be like had you and the people you're in community with not chosen to make an aggressive move and put an ad in a magazine advertising for a pastor. I mean, that's crazy. Did you come under criticism for doing that? No, there were, you know, and part of that is also the blessing to doing something. You got to be careful of voices that you listen to. There's a lot of stuff nobody had told us we weren't supposed to do, and we just did. You know, things like when we started and doing direct mail pieces and advertising a church. That may not seem like a weird thing now. 25, 27 years ago, all of a sudden we found out, whoa, you don't do that. You, you, you sleazy advertising people, you don't bring those skills into the church. You know, you keep that outside. And it was part of it was this overall thing that I know you were passionate about was just coming at this segmentation of the sacred and the secular that the church world had come to perpetuate, of that we had to be one thing outside of wherever we went to church versus, you know, inside. And it was the same thing for us. So there was a lot of things we just didn't know we weren't supposed to be doing. Yeah. 
but you did them. You pushed out from them. Do you think it gets easier or harder as you age to kind of maintain that entrepreneurial kind of cutting edge mindset? Yeah, that, that's a good question. Uh, I think it depends on the person. I, did, yeah. I think it depends on uh, why you're doing something and if you are committed to being a growth mode for life. If you believe, if you believe like we do, that life is progressive revelation, God's always peeling the onion, he always has something more for you, and that will include always taking you to an uncomfortable place. How many times, how many times in our life can we say we grew in a place of comfort? Yeah. We always go. So if you are bought into the notion that God is going to have growth for me my whole life, then I think you'll you'll stay in that place. And the beauty of it now, I hope, not that you know, perfect poster boy of this by any means, if you can add some wisdom to that equation, you know, if over time you can not only have knowledge, but you can have life experience and add a little reflection to that, then you end up with wisdom and you're still in a growth mode. The default mode should be as we get older, we're, we're actually getting more aggressive in a lot of those ways. I was just turned on to a book that I just ordered um, by guy, Stu Bamig. Remember Stu Bamig? Way back when, started Orchard Hill Church. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, anyway, he was telling me about a, a guy he knows, and I've read some uh, books of his in the past. I haven't for a while. His name is Bob Beal. He's an executive coach. Um, and he wrote this book on how to leverage every decade of your life. And his his conclusion, having worked with thousands of executives and people in business and uh, some pastors as well, is, well, let me ask you this. When do you think the most productive years of a person's life are? Oh, well, I hate to be this way, but it depends on how they're defining production. You know, what productive... How, well, how would you define it? What, what do you, which, which ways could you define that? Well, I mean, you certainly could define uh, productive by, you know, uh, just what you're pumping out in the world. You know, how, how size of business that you're leading, creative output, you know, anything like that. I would say more de- productive is defined by me, you know, growing in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, me being more other-centered, you know, all that kind of stuff. I don't know what his answer was. I would assume that it was probably like in your 50s or 60s. Yeah, his answer is 60 to 70. Okay, yeah, sweet. Because his, well, I'm just hearing secondhand right now because I haven't read the book yet. I've, I've ordered it. Because you're, um, you have a much bigger picture that you're playing for. A lot of the stupid mistakes you make when you're young, you've learned those, you moved on from that, you were able to focus, all that stuff. It was really, it was really cool to read that. Um, 60 to 70, because you know, we're, we're in this youth-obsessed culture where right. we think our greatest year was when we were 30 or something like that. Or if we're, if we're not making our mark, whatever that is, by the time we're 40, then we, we've lost everything. I just found that really intriguing, so I'm, I'm digging into it more, yeah, which but, you and I have been talking about a lot as we've both been aging. Like, yeah. you know, what's, what's our future look like? The, ca- the caveat I would put on that, uh, you know, because I spend a lot of time with senior executives nowadays, is that... Wisdom is not only knowledge, but it's life experience, but then it has to be reflection on top of that. And when I look at senior leaders that have piled up the knowledge and they've piled up the life experience and they haven't built healthy rhythms in their life for reflecting on things, that's when they're still not making wise decisions later in their life. But they've been able to put some rhythms of reflection into their life and add that on top of their knowledge and all their incredible life experience. That's when I think they're getting that sweet spot of productivity. So what's that mean, rhythm of reflection? How, how would you do that? Is there a template you could lay out for us? I think it's probably different, you know, for each person, you know. Uh, 
But for me, it's just trying to find times when that is not about production. Uh, you know, for me, our faith tradition, you know, involves with me having a quiet time and usually in the morning, you know, and not just where I'm kind of telling God my laundry list of things that I need, but actually taking time to actually listen. You know, we joke about, you know, growing up in uh, uh, places where you could talk to God, but if you said you were hearing from God or you're listening, then you were, yeah, maybe we should lock this person up. You know, the idea of this relationship with our creator is that he has things for us to say to us, but we have to be in a posture and a place of listening. So for me, and it's, th- it's things like now I've developed a, a rhythm of having a quarterly day of solitude where I just go away and I'm not, it's not going away because now I have this book I really want to read that I haven't got to. It's just going away and spending time out in nature alone, just listening Things like that. I think a lot of times we think about this concept, and this is a little little tangent for those of you that are, you know, within a Christian tradition here. We talk about the idea in, in the Bible of abiding, abiding with God, and and that we abide in all our fruit, all our productiveness flows from that, you know. But we tend to think of abiding as something that we do. If I could just go be a, a monk in a monastery or something like that, no. We can abide while we're running a business. We can abide while we're leading a family, you know, whatever that it is. And it's finding the rhythm that works for you. But I would say that if you find you are producing incredible things, but you are not becoming more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control, it's probably the reflection piece that's missing from your life. Yeah, that's that's a good word. Yeah, you're working with right now with uh, CEOs from around the country. It's one of the things you do. You've always had a very interesting um, business life, career life, I think, you know, you, Procter and Gamble running clear. So ah, I'm going to go start a church for a while. And then, uh, no, I'm going to, uh, go produce movies. Uh, no, I'm going to go write a book and try to do a publishing house, uh, or a number of books you're doing. Uh, no, I'm going to go, uh, there's, there's a number of really cool transitions that you've made, which you're probably like one of the guys who seems to have mastered that really well of job transition and going into a new leg. Have you thought about yourself that way, or have you noticed you've been pretty successful doing that? No, and and it's like, you know, you're talking about starting Crossroads, you know, 30 years ago or whatever that it was. It's not that it's like the, some, the culmination of some grand plan. It's, again, just saying, okay, what is— What's on my desk right now? What has God put in front of me right now? And let me go do that. So it's when you look back on it now, now it's been a sequence of different seasons, but it's never been like some grand plan and saying, okay, now what's the big next boat that I'm going to get in? It's just, God, what do you have for me today? And where can I be part of what you're doing? Well, it's pretty impressive how you're able to say that prayer and actually do it. There's, there's just not a lot of people who are able to make that many proactive moves. You're, you, you've made all the moves I just mentioned, not because you got fired or you got laid off or something like that. You made them when you were doing really well with what you had before and going onto other things inside that organization. And then you jumped on, on another track. It's, it's, it's pretty cool. Yeah, well, and it's interesting. It's interesting. That well, I, unless that, it was not cool when you left Crossroads because you were on staff for a while. That was not cool at all because that was an awful day when you left the staff at Crossroads. You were amazing. So uh, anyway, that's been amazing to see how you did done that. Well, and and thanks. I You know, it's you know interesting when you talk about within the context of this podcast, you know, the title of The Aggressive Life. I do not consider myself to be a particularly aggressive person. I don't consider myself to be – I'm a pretty risk-adverse person, uh, you know, in a lot of ways. But I found for me, um, and again, I'll go back to, you know, kind of like the faith tradition that we're in. Um, there's pretty much a given assumption that the way you make a decision if you're a serious follower of Christ is you make a decision, big decisions in your life with prayer, with Bible, and community. 
You know, those are kind of the three legs of the stool, really, that we use. And I absolutely agree in all those. And then also you throw in the circumstances in that. You have to be, you know, uh, just uh, practical and understand what are the circumstances that you're in. But you take prayer, Bible, and community. The, The thing is that I think a lot of people get caught up in, though, is they do those things and they're getting kind of a general direction of they somewhere they think they're supposed to go and oftentimes it's jumping out of the boat that they're in but then they throw one more criteria on the equation they say okay now based on prayer bible and community the people around us i'm supposed to go this thing god i will do this if you do this miraculous thing and you show me this and some people it works that way and that's awesome for them what i found for me though is based on the brain god gave me based on the prayer bible and community around me i get to that place then i say okay god i'm going to go do that thing Unless you intervene miraculously, I'm going to default to go now. So I spend all that time in what I call seasons of prayer and spreadsheets. But then when I get a direction of where I can go, then what I ask of God, don't ask for him to intervene in my life to tell me not to in some way he's never spoken to me before. I ask him to intervene in my life in some way he's never spoken to me before if he doesn't want me to go and do that. Hmm. You, you err on the side of taking the step. Default to go. Default to go. Instead yeah. of default to prove that— Default to stay unless I get a miracle, yeah. Yeah, that's good. You set up at the beginning of this podcast how I came into your life. Well, I could turn the tables and talk about the decision that you and Lib made in Pittsburgh. And you had a nice gig going there, and you had retirement starting to add up, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then these 11 crazy people in Cincinnati want you to give that all up, literally give it all up and move here. Same kind of thing. So I think that's just, you know, there's that, uh, there's that, uh, uh, I, I don't think this is uh, uh, apocryphal. I think this is uh, absolutely true that we're all we're all a function of like the five or six people that are closest around us as far as your health habits, your financial habits mm. or whatever. You're really impacted by your close circle around you. So you look around the five or six people closest to you. Generally, your life and your fitness habits are going to be more in line with them, your financial habits, you know, those kind of things. We're just very impacted by community around us. I think having seen the crazy things that God was doing here through your life and through crossroads and all that probably that significantly poured into that for me. That's that's really a a great observation about friends and stuff. We are the, we are the average of the five or six people who are closest to us. Yeah, and I'm sure there's some absolute statistic on that. It might not be five or six, maybe it's eight or 10 or whatever, but yeah, I've I've, I've heard that. No, I, I, you just think about anecdotally who you have around you or the people you know uh, or the people who hang around other folks or people whose lives are going downhill or uphill. Yeah, you're right. That's that's really good call. Well, I'm happy that you're in my life because no question I'm further further along because of you in my life. But I, I don't, I, I don't, uh, you talked about the, the decisions that Lib and I came to make moving from Pittsburgh to Cincinnati. It's interesting. I don't, I don't know. I guess when I look at some of the decisions that we've made, they just don't seem that like that big of a deal to me. But I notice it when I see it in somebody else. Like, oh, that's and maybe we just pressurize our own life and we appreciate what somebody else decides instead of what we're own deciding. Maybe we take that for granted. I don't. I don't. I haven't thought about that that much. Yeah, I think it's probably true. Well, is it true that you got in trouble at the age of nine for selling your deceased grandfather's belongings to the neighborhood kids from your garage? Is that true? 
this just became like some kind of intervention or <laughs> yes just, it did no grinding grinding of the gears here also now it's shock radio now we're right, right are we going to the phones yet we're going to take some callers no trying to establish that there was that there there's there's been a a pattern yes. of seeing yes. things yeah. and taking advantage of them yeah, exactly not yeah. taking advantage no of kids, it was but. it was there was a i discovered in our garage like some old uh i think they're i don't know world war one medals or old kind of uh Stuff like that from my grandfather. I decided to have an ad hoc garage sale, and then when when all the neighbor kids started going home with their newfound things they had bought for me, my mom started getting all these calls. So, uh, yeah, World War One medal. Yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. It was an early lesson, and yeah, it was an early lesson for me. If you can have all the marketing right, but if you have supply chain issues, you're screwed. You know, so <laughs> I did not have a sustainable model. <laughs> so you've you've actually been doing that for a while. You did that with uh, World War One medals. You had a bit of a side business in college as well. I did have a side business in college, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 You can tell us what that uh, is, yeah. or are you still not wanting to talk about that? No, I, I've <laughs> talked about it from stage at Crossroads before. Yeah, it's not something I'm not something I'm proud of, but it's part of my part of my story, and I think it's just one of the ways that you know God works. I, un, unfortunately for me, and I know I'm not alone in this, but um, uh, pornography has a long track record in my life, starting from a very early age. And, and one of the problems of that was that my first exposure to sex was from that standpoint. So when I later heard, when my, when my best friend told me later, a little bit later, that my mom and dad had to do that for me to be born, we got in a fist fight. Because I thought he was accusing them of something really dirty, oh, wow. you know. So that was <laughs> wow. that's been a challenge in my life. Of, of the, it wasn't that I that there was something beautiful that then got corrupted. It's my foundation was wow. corrupted, and I had to learn that there's something you know better than that. But so that was that was that was part of uh, uh, early part of my life. But yeah, I mean, so much well, so that that's fascinating. I've not I've not heard that from you. So just to make sure I understand. So your your first experience of pornography and first sexual experience, obviously, which is most men, most men, that is their situation, yeah. pornography. But for you, the different thing is you didn't have the birds and the bees talk, so you never connected that to actually you being born. Right. Correct. Yeah. Not until not until later. Yeah. So I yeah. Um, so like with my kids, I was I'm not naive. My kids are like I know they're going to be exposed to it. But dang it, it's not going to be their first exposure. It's at least going to be a corruption of something pure that they've heard first that they're going to have to lay it next to. That was different for me. But anyway, one it played out in a lot of different ways. One of the ways that I viewed the opposite sex, you know, constantly in transactional relationships and everything that goes along with that, you know, all the way through to college that then there was a bad a bad cocktail of that with my entrepreneurial spirit of that uh, – I went to University of Illinois, and uh, at the time, you know, this would this would have been like mid '80s, mid '80s or so. There weren't few people had VHS. Uh, players, but you know, not most, you know. So one of the things that uh, student organizations would do on campus to raise money is they would rent from this national company movie projectors and movies, and they would rent out a lecture hall on campus, and they would show movies on the weekend and sell tickets to raise money. So, okay, you can go see, you know, Star Wars, you know, or you can go see, you know, uh, you know, uh, Maltese Falcon or something that's going to be playing at the Lincoln Hall, you know, auditorium this weekend, that kind of thing. So, 
uh, some buddies of mine and I started a fictitious student organization and we were showing movies on campus and then filtering the money out of the accounts for ourselves. Not proud of that. What I'm particularly not proud of is that when then we discovered that because of a clause in the free speech kind of understanding for student organizations, we could show any movie that we wanted. So we started showing porn flicks. So I was the porn king at the University of Illinois for a while. Um, th that just shows you kind of how how much I was not only I was not only kind of in the pit, but I was like grabbing everybody else and pulling them in with me. You know. And you didn't do it underground. You just flaunted it and said, no, it's in the student charter and yeah, I can right. do this. So you weren't doing anything against school policies. Right. Hmm. Yeah. How yeah. long did you do that for? Yeah. Yeah. That was two years, two years of college paid for all our spring, spring breaks. Oh, wow. Um, uh, yeah. And, but that, I mean, that was just indicative of, of, uh, that part of the journey. And for, so for me, for me dealing with lust and pornography and all that kind of became a significant part of my journey after I became a, a follower of Christ. And I'm just so, uh, so thrilled that uh, you know God kind of healed me through that, and that's a uh, piece of my journey that uh, is uh, um, incredibly impactful for me and caused a lot of pain in a lot of different ways. But it's probably been you know at least twenty years since that's been a significant uh, challenge in my life. We just had a podcast come out with Joshua Broom, who's a former porn star, a thousand films one, you know, male performer of the year award. And, uh, you know, he, he, when we talked about the industry that he, that he was in, he's not in it anymore. It was, uh, it was really wild to have a peek behind the curtain on it. Um, and there's just an insidious thing around pornography. Uh, you mentioned your first experience with pornography. Mine was, tell me how this works. How is it that you're out with a buddy playing in the Creek and an eight millimeter porno film start comes towards you floating down the creek. Like, <laughs> well, what is this? You know, uh, yeah. how how does how does that happen without a literal sinister force in our world that sets you up for stuff? Yeah, you know. Yeah, and yeah, you think I mean I don't want to sound like an old guy here, no, but you talk about the challenges that we had, but then that was never something that was, you know not only in my bedroom, but it was on my phone every day, you know, kind of thing. I mean, just, it's, yeah. Or if it's not on your, on your phone right now, down, it can be on your phone at any moment, right. every time. Right, yeah. Oh, man, if I was 15, 16, this culture now versus when I grew up, I, I would hate, hate to see what it, how that would have destroyed me. It, it just, this would have destroyed me. So this actually led you into doing another aggressive move. I think it's probably the background why you ended up getting into producing movies and films. You wanted holistic entertainment, right? Yeah, I guess I know. You know, that's interesting. I never completely connected the dots on that until you just said that just now. But yeah, I think that that is part of it. It's just when my kids started to be uh, get to be the age of around middle school, I just was increasingly not satisfied with the entertainment choices that we had. I felt like increasingly that's right around the time when, you know, a lot of the stuff that's acceptable kitty kind of stuff is no longer acceptable for them, but they're getting into the place where there seem to be trade-offs, you know, where, okay, now if we're really going to stay entertained, then I'm going to have to accept these trade-offs of maybe these messages, uh, to my kids that I'm not necessarily wanting to feed my family. So that's where, you know, that, uh, that kind of came from was that a passion where I said, and, and, and then when, uh, Jim and I, uh, you know, my, uh, friend who we started Crossroads together, and then we started this company together as well. Uh, when we placed a large piece of research, we found that we were not alone in that challenge that we we're finding moms in particular, 
dads uh, really struggling with that challenge and how they kind of would word it is they felt like a certain stage of the kid's life to get to a place where it, it seems like the entertainment choices out there are all Teletubbies or Breaking Bad. And there's nothing kind of in between. And I don't mean to like slam either one of those properties, you know, for their own reasons. They're there. But there needs to be choices you know, that are in between that are awesome entertainment, but also are calling out what's best in us instead of preying on what's worst in us. And it went pretty well for you. Uh, it was, uh, call it uh, uh, varying degrees of success, mediocrity, and abject failure is a little bit in all of it. Uh, but yeah, we did did a lot of uh, content for network television. We learned a lot. I would say probably, you know, if I did 15 movies, I would say probably a third of them were really good. A third of them were mediocre and a third of them were, eh, wish I had a do-over on that one. Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah. Well, this also led you into getting involved with sex slavery work in India. There is a really a, a theme that goes through here of sexual purity, which you believe the, the sex trade industry is directly tied to our fixation with unhealthy sex here in the States. Sure, yeah. I mean, I don't lay everything at the foot of the media. You know, I, I think if a kid takes a gun into his classroom, he had more going on wrong in his life than he played the wrong video game. But when I was brand manager on ClearCell and I had a good piece of advertising, you know, what did I do? I heavied up. Well, why did I do that? Because I knew that that 30-second spot would motivate kids to get off the couch, go down to Walgreens, and buy another tube of Clearasil. How can I pretend that the other 22 minutes, 44 minutes of content they're being exposed to isn't influencing their behavior? And so there were times like when we were starting some of the early justice work for Crossroads, and I would be over in India and I would see just the pervasive influence of the American entertainment industry in India and Sri Lanka and elsewhere. And I would just be like, you know, people talk about that America's lost its leadership influence in the world. It's like, no, but what are we leading people in? And again, it's not that there's not everything out there is bad by any means. No, there's some great stuff out there. But a lot of it is preying on this culture, mixing this cocktail of violence and sex together and selling it to our kids in the name of entertainment. Yeah. And you think that's driving the industry, at least? I, I think it's part of it. Yeah, there, there's two sides of the equation, right? When you, when you talk about exploitation of kids, there's supply and demand, you know? Yeah, let's absolutely go after the supply. And there's incredible organizations like International Justice Mission and others in the world that I'm huge fans of and supporters of that are doing great going after the supply side of the equation. But what about the demand side? What is making people desire these kind of things in the first place? I think it's the stories that we're telling each other, the stories that we entertain each ourselves with, either are leading us closer to who God created us to be or they're taking us further away. Yes, right. How about... Books. You, you're really uh, writing these books. Do you think the books trace back as well to trying to create a more pure, perfect world? Yeah, well, and that, that's part of the the entire model we're trying to do is with my books, we're trying to take them and we're trying to turn them into TV series, turn them into movies, etc. All part of that equation, all of creating stories that are both great executional-wise, creatively, and good, calling out what's best in us. So, yeah, that's all. that's all part of the model. Well, just talking with you, Beam, here, because you and I have spent a lot of time together over the last 26 years, whatever it is, a lot, a lot of time. Just to talk about these things in a very compressed time, I don't think I realized until now the significant through line that early awful sexual experience was, has for the choices you've made occupationally. It yes. all, all connects that some way, which is pretty cool, really. It's cool. Yeah, I, certainly it's it's contributed it, which is, you know, I mean, that's... yeah. 
classic scripture, you know, that man is meant for evil, you know, God can use for good, that, you know, God uses all of it. Right, right. Yeah, I hadn't seen with all the moves that you've made, I really hadn't seen a through line. It just seemed to me to be, oh, that makes sense to try that for a while. It makes sense to try that for a while. But really, there is a there is a, a through line in the harmony of your life. It's It's pretty cool to see it. Pretty cool to experience it. What do you think the next thing is? Do you think like, um, do you like, do you have in your mind? I think I'm going to be doing what I'm doing now for another X years, or do you feel like, hey, now I'm getting the point where I can actually see a see an end in sight? How, how do you think about the future now as a late fifty something year old? Yeah, I think. Well, first thing I would say is it's the same thing. I think as always, as I reflect back, it's just seeing what's in front of me right now and then responding to it. So I'm really excited by it. And I think I could be doing what I'm doing for the rest of my life. You know, I really do. But also open if God, you know, he's going to show me something later and I'll, I'll respond to it. What I do know is you talked a little bit about age and we've talked about this before. You take a look at like so many of the heroes in the Bible, whether it's Moses and Aaron, you know, Moses and Aaron, it said that they were like, what? Like I want to say like 83, 84 years old or so when yeah. 80 for Moses, yes. Yeah, when God called them to go into Pharaoh and say, let my people go. And I always caveated that by saying, oh, yeah, that was like Old Testament, 80 years old. You know, that was when people lived to be like 300, 400, you know, whatever. But then you look at, at like later in the Psalms where it says this is a Psalm of Moses. And most uh, theologians would say, no, that is actually that Psalm, that Psalm was written by Moses. And he says in that Psalm, he says something along the lines of, we get maybe like 70 or 80 years if we're strong on this earth. When you compare those two, the guess that Moses 80, that was our 80. That was our 80 years right. old. Aaron was our 80 when it, when it, Daniel was our 80 some years old when he was in the lion's den. Paul was our, basically our 80 years old or so when his eyes were failing and he was writing the epistles and all that. So many of these heroes in the Bible, they did not get their spiritual Wikipedia moments until they were like in their 80s. In their 80s. So I'm really excited. It might be for both of us. It might be for everybody listening out there. You haven't even come close to the moment that God has really created you for. Which is entirely countercultural because we believe in our culture, if you, you know, if you haven't made the under 40 list by the time you're 38, you're, you're got nothing going on. If you haven't made your first million by whatever, if you haven't, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's a youth obsessed culture, but no, you're right. It's, it's, it's the long play. It's the people who have attained wisdom and haven't tanked their life. There's huge upside. People like, I mean, these people aren't believers I know of, but you know, Ray McDonald, Ray, excuse me, Ray Kroc from McDonald's didn't, didn't start McDonald's to his 51, 51. He was selling freaking milkshake machines, yeah, right? 51. Right. Yeah. Clint Eastwood, until his most recent movie, which was pretty bad, I think it was Cry Camacho or Macho Man or whatever, that was just not a good movie. Okay, fine. You're 95 and you can finally not have a good movie. But his movies from 90, 80 to 95 have been unbelievable. You know, but we've got this narrative that says I got to start just being done. It's That's one of the things that, uh, you know, you and I have talked about. Beam is on the, on the board here at Crossroads. And so we... We talk regularly around, okay, what's succession look like? When's my run done? And all that stuff. And um, it's like, gosh, just talking too much about that. Not not real. My, my run's going to be a long, long way out there unless you don't like my interviewing skills and you're going to try to fire me right now. But <laughs> it's, a, it's a long way out there. It's the, the, the potency somebody has who has, a, who has a life well managed is beyond what we think it can be. Yeah. 
that's the key, the little asterisk you just put at the end of life well managed. You know, are you, again, I, you know, hit the same thing, but are you taking your knowledge and your life experience and you're adding to it reflection from a posture of I'm going to be learning for life? Well, it's, I agree with that a hundred percent, but it's also other things. Lib and I were talking about this just yesterday, actually. It's other things like, are you enjoying your life? Enjoying your life? Because if you're not enjoying your life, you you can't wait to be done. You got to be done at sixty five or or sixty. Or what do you? Because like I gotta got to do things I don't want to. I, I'm I've been living a full life for a long time. I'm I'm doing great things right now as part of my day job. Where I take time off my day job to do it. I don't I don't feel like I need to break out in order to have some fun things in my life. And I think a lot of folks just haven't haven't figured out how to have fun in a in a in a healthy, absorbing way. Yeah, I agree. All right. Beam, are you ready for the lightning round? Uh, you know, if anybody, if anybody could do the lightning round, you can do it. You, you know why? Because you have two nicknames for me, Beam, and what's your other one? Memo man. Memo man. Yes. Memo man. I'll be in these intensive, intensive discussions and and very, very complicated issues, and then he'll come out with just like a two sentence memo goes makes you go. Oh yeah, yeah that that that's exactly right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's said so simply. So you're gonna kill this. Are you there's ready a, for it? There's a part of that that's dysfunctional, as my wife has pointed out. She said that I would someday the book I'm gonna write on relationships is special moments made more efficient. <laughs> I do like to condense things down to their very their very essence. I do remember when we first started hanging out. I'd be talking about something, explaining something, and you go, "Got it." You say, "Got it." Yeah. And I would when you say you would say, "Got it." I would go like, really? Like I can stop talking now? <laughs> I would say like, uh, I felt it was awesome. It was like, oh wow, point made. Just told me very, very clearly, point made. But I, I guess, guess that doesn't work with your your wife very well. When you say, got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm learning. I love it. Keep using it for me. I love it. Here, here we go. So lightning round is what we should call this for for beam. This is the memo round. The be- the memo round. So write us a memo, one to two sentences on these things. Are you ready? Ready. Your favorite book you've ever read? Uh, Mere Christianity, Screw Tape Letters, To Kill a Mockingbird. Your favorite book that you haven't yet written? That's fascinating. I'm not prepared to publicly talk about it, but that's fascinating. It's called The Aggressive Life. Can't hold back on us, babe. <laughs> yeah, so I, I've got an allegory that a friend of mine and I have been working on for about 15 years, and we're getting ready to start taking meetings about it right now. So I've just kind of... Yeah, I've I've blown the uh, the announcement. Yeah. Oh, that's sweet. You can blow the announcement because you haven't told us what's in it. I know it's in it, but we won't have you yeah. share that at all. Uh, boy, somebody just share with me an amazing book idea they have. I don't think I talk about it, but I would love to because it's a fascinating book idea. I almost want to call them right now, but I won't. Here we go. Okay. Movie. Well, I, uh, just one little point on that. Yes. I don't know who the person was. I don't know what the idea was, but the thing you need to tell them is to write it. Because ideas, awesome ideas are great, but as you well know, they're a dime a dozen. You know, uh, it's all in the execution. All in the execution. When we were when we were developing the the, the television content early, uh, I said, you know, in in the basic concept idea, Lost and Gilligan's Island could have pretty much been the same show, but it was all in the execution of where it went. You know, so ideas. I used to have when we were doing the movies. I used to have people come up to me, oh, I got this great idea for a movie. It, 
we have this myth that it's just the idea and that no, it's the idea plus a whole lot of stinking hard work and perseverance to get it out there. Right. Movie or filmmaker that inspires you? Oh, there's a lot for different reasons. If I had to say one, I'd probably say J.J. Abrams, just because his range, you know, he you know, could write regarding Henry. He could develop Alias and Lost and uh, all the other stuff that he's been doing. I think that he's, he's, he's one of the most creative minds. Best advice you've ever gotten? Uh, two. Foundationally, uh, there is a God and it's not you. So you got to figure out what that means, but there is a God and it's not you. The second one would be, just go with some classic Stephen Covey stuff here from Seven Habits. In your life, there will be stimulus and response. In between stimulus and response is your capacity to choose and make choices. That's where effective life is going to live. We are not just a victim of our stimulus. We get to choose how we're going to respond. That's true for starting a business. That's true for relationships. It's true for anything. Beam, is there anything you want to talk about that we haven't talked about yet? Things you're excited for me to ask I haven't asked you, or things you just want to get on your soapbox on? Uh, I would say two soapboxes real quick. One is that for anyone who's uh, starting out their career, listening to this, uh, I learned early on that problems are my paycheck. You know, I, 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 when we first started doing the movies, I used to whine a bit. People would say, well, what's it like to make a movie? I'd say, well, that's easy. It's one problem after the other, you know. But I learned as a producer, you're not writing the movie. You're not acting in the movie. You're not Why are you needed? You're only needed if there's problems. Vast majority of us, our careers are going to be defined by are we somebody who runs to problems or runs away from them? Thank God for those problems because they are your paycheck. Don't resent them. So that's one. Hmm. The other thing is just, you know, my other little soapbox and take this however you want. You may be, uh, you know, you may be a blue state person. You may be a red state person. But if you are a follower of Christ, the answer is not to overcome evil with evil. The answer is to overcome evil with good. So the end does not justify the means. And just, just keep that in mind. How do you see us doing that one way or the other? Well, I see... Politically, people responding to evil on one end by matching it with an equal amount of force of evil on the other end. And I'm just like, that doesn't doesn't add up, not in the book that I read. Yeah. I don't think there's ever been, at least as, as long as I've been alive, there's never been a, a darker time politically in our country's history since I've been alive. Do you, do you feel the same way? Yeah. Maybe not, but certainly there have. There oh, have they, certainly, give me hope. You say maybe well, not. Well, I mean, that? well, just the minute I say that, I can think of uh, of Robert Kennedy being assassinated, Martin Luther King being assassinated, JFK being assassinated, all within you know what kind of the Vietnam War, you know, Civil War, you know, et cetera. So I do think in our life. That's why I say in my lifetime. Oh yeah, in are, my lifetime, yeah. right? In my lifetime. But then I can kind of take a look and then, you know, one of the things I love to do whenever I'm in Washington, D.C. is I go to Lincoln Memorial and I've taken each one of my kids when they were in middle school on daddy, daddy weekend trips to Washington, D.C. And one of the things I do is I always take them to Lincoln Memorial and we read the speeches on the walls. And one of the speeches that's inscribed on the walls is the second inaugural address. Absolute brilliant, brilliant piece of writing and, and, and oratory. But one of the things he says in there is he's referring back to the Civil War is he says both sides read the same Bible. And prayed to the same God, but both could not be right. So I realized, like, yeah, yes, it's the worst it's been in my lifetime, but this this has been going on for a long time. Yeah, good stuff. 
or not, not good stuff, but good insight. Brian Wells, is there anything that people can read or people can uh, sign up for to follow up with you or hear what you got going on? Just advertise yourself for us. Yeah, I have a new podcast launching the Passive Aggressive Life. Uh, <laughs> the Passive Just to offer a little bit of a balance to whatever you're pumping out in the world. Someone, someone said the other day, said, that was really passive aggressive of you. I said, no, dude, I am not passive. I'm I am aggressive, gr- <laughs> aggressive. I am not passive. I'm not smart enough to be passive aggressive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, the, uh, if if somebody if somebody has you know like uh, young middle school kids in their life and they want to know uh, more about maybe some books that would be fun for them to read, then go to brianwellsbooks.com and they can find out more about my books. That would be the only way. All right, all right. Hey, brother, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for all you've done to help my life and push things forward. It's uh, your good friend and an honor to be in life with you. Honor to be with you. All right. We'll Number see. Number 163. All right. All right. Hey, we'll see you next time on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For all things aggressive living, why don't you head over to bryantome.com. Find my new book, Move, a guide to get up and go forward, as well as articles and much, much more. And no matter where you listen to podcasts, why don't you take a second and leave us a rating, leave us a review. It really, really helps us drive new listeners to the show. We want to help as many people as possible, just like we may have helped you. We want to help others. So why don't you help us out? And if you want to connect, find me on Instagram, at Brian Tome. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.